0: Good evening. Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We're in chapter 3 of Jonah. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to chapter 3, please. Jonah chapter 3 and 4 tonight. We come to the second major division of the book of Jonah, chapter 3 and 4, where God gives to Jonah a second commission to go to Nineveh. As we've been studying Jonah in depth on Sunday morning and his messages, we've learned a lot about him, but in learning about Jonah, we learn about ourselves. Um, and that's the whole purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not for us to criticize the Bible or to exalt ourselves, is that it might cut us to the heart that it might encourage us that it might correct us that it might build us up and point us in the right direction Jonah has been portrayed in the following ways in relationship to God we pointed out in our introduction but let me point it out again Jonah was a rebel of God in chapter 1 we saw Jonah and the storm revealing disobedience and self-will in chapter 2 we see Jonah and the fish revealing discipline and seeming repentance. In chapter 3, we see Jonah and the city revealing proclamation through the seeming obedience. And in chapter 4, we see Jonah now and the Lord revealing resentfulness, but he's learning. Jonah was also the prophet of God. In chapter 1, Jonah is portrayed as the rebelling prophet. In chapter 2, Jonah's portrayed as the praying prophet. In chapter 3, Jonah's portrayed as the preaching prophet. And in chapter 4, Jonah's portrayed as the pouting prophet. But Jonah was the instrument of God. In chapter 1, the will of God was to be obeyed. In chapter 2, the ways of God were to be learned from. In chapter 3, the work of God was to be rejoiced over. In chapter 4, the wise of God were to be accepted. But Jonah, maybe in the most important thing, he was um, the representative of God. When people see us, they, they interpret who God is and what God is through us, sadly, sometimes. In chapter 1, God is pursuing the rebelling prophet. In chapter 2, God is preserving the praying prophet. In chapter 3, God is preaching through the poisoned prophet. In chapter 4, God is preaching to the pouting prophet. This little book is just so filled with, um, it's such a, a window into our own life in every way. So as we come here to chapter 3, we looked at chapter 3 in depth this morning. We're not going to belabor all the things we said there, but we'll give an overview on here and more general commentary. Verse 1 through 4, we have the preaching of to Nineveh. And here he says, Get Jonah here. We got her back up. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you." And so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. The second commission of Jonah, here in verse 1, this again is divine revelation. All the prophets of old, they didn't run of their own impulse or origin or spoke of their own impulse and origin. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us very clearly. But as the men of God, we're carried along by the Spirit of God. Here, the revelation of God comes to Jonah. Um, God's not through with Jonah. Um, we give up on people. We think God's through with people. We think God is through with us, but God isn't. And so we have to be good students of the Word of God. Now, that is not to be taken lightly or to say, well, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care what I do. I'll do whatever. you will still use me. No, no, no. That's, that's a whole different thing. But we need to understand that we are saved by grace through faith and that God is more gracious than we can even imagine. Yet God does not um, allow cheap grace to be given out. He is holy, we're sinful, and he makes provision for us. And he wants us to make use of the new nature he gives us and the enabling that he gives us to fight the good fight. To put on the whole armor, to reckon the old man dead, to put on the new man by that renewing of the spirit of our mind. Good warfare. It's a winnable warfare. You remember Abraham had two calls, chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's the two calls there. The end of 11, the beginning of 12. He uh, stayed with his father to Haran and there he died and then the second call came to him. So there's many people in scripture that have uh, disobeyed in their first call. Moses, the same thing in Exodus chapter 2 and 3 and Hebrews 11, gives us a commentary on that. Two calls. We mentioned Peter this morning as he uh, was called by God, uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, from his uh, uh, occupation of being a fisherman. And then he denied the Lord three times and Jesus recommissions him in John 21. John Mark left Paul and his uncle Barnabas out there in the mission field. Paul didn't want anything to do with them. Barnabas wanted to take another chance on him. There was a big split. Strong dissension. Acts 13. And yet in Second Timothy 4.11, Paul says at the end of his ministry, Second Timothy is when Paul's going to lose his head for his Christianity. And he says, by the way, um, Mark is profitable for ministry. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that, um, that a person fails. They cannot be used again. But certainly it does take time to make sure that we don't put a novice or put someone who is irresponsible back in the ministry. So we want to make sure that we use wisdom at the same time, but never just to uh, put people out for the sake of castigation. Though there may be castigation necessary, but it's always for reconciliation and restoration. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You don't just punish your child just to get off. Because it makes you happy. It doesn't make you happy, but you know, sometimes you have to do that before they can turn. And it shouldn't be any different in the church. Too often we think God is one who cuts people off, and the first time they fail, he does not. There's a caution that we should never mock or tempt God by making light of sin or disobedience. So we have to be careful. In verse 2, the location is still Nineveh. Arise, go and preach. The same word as cry in chapter 1, verse 2, the first commission. And Jonah is to preach only what God tells him, not his own ideas or desires. Now, this may sound trite, but this is the problem and this is what's gotten America in trouble. That pastors have taught what they want from the pulpit rather than teaching the word of God. Our nation is in the spiritual condition it's in. And the consequence of being in a bad spiritual condition is morals, ethics, finances, and family life. And so pastors are teaching subjectively their Not teaching the word of God. They're teaching philosophy. They're teaching religion. They're teaching all this stuff. And it's not really the word of God. And so it brings a great destruction to the church and the people of God. In verse 3, the prophet Jonah obeyed God. There was the city proper and four suburb cities around it, as we've talked about before. It's an incredible, incredible city. Some say it means Jonah traveled three days to cross the city. Whether it is or not, we're not sure. Exceeding great city in size, as a three-day journey, interpreted by some to go through and others to go around. The important thing is, as we said this morning, is that Jonah preached for three days. And certainly it was loud enough and certainly it brought attention to people enough, not only by how he looked and how he was dressed, but also by the very message itself. As we 're going to see it it isn't really a message of love it isn't a message that expounds all kinds of things it 's just straightforward it 's really you know make your choice, turn or burn it 's kind of what he 's saying in verse four there the prophet Jonah proclaimed god 's message from the first day, so it contains only eight words in the English, five in the Hebrew, forty days. And Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty, as we've stated this morning and we have before, is that 40 is the number of judgment. You have the judgment of the flood, 40 days, 40 nights of rain. You have 40 years in the wilderness, the judgment over Israel for the rebellion. Forty strikes were given to a man, blows on his back if he did something worthy of that. No more than 40, lest you humiliate him. And if you were merciful, you'd give him 39. Jesus Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before being tempted by the devil. And so 40 is a number of judgment. Verse 5 down to 10, then you have the salvation of the people of Nineveh. He says, and so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed the fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Here in verse 5, the people of Nineveh they heard the message of Jonah and they repented. They believed God. The word God here is Elohim, creator. The word Yahweh, also the covenant God, is used. But hear the Creator. Faith again comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. People often come and ask, you know, Pastor Tabor, what can I do to, to, to grow? What can, What book can I read? You can read the book of Numbers and you'll grow. Any book. But you've got to be consistent in your reading, your studying, and your being the church, not just coming to church. If you want to grow, you've got to be around where the word of God is taught, where the word of God is being lived out, where you're involved in instructing others and helping others in ministry. And that's how you grow. You can't you can't grow on snacking on God's food. I remember when I was first came to the Lord in 73 and um, Pastor Chuck used to have tapes with. What well, used to be tapes, and um, when I first got saved, Chuck would go through ten chapters on Sunday night at a time. Of course, there were overviews, but he would cover ten chapters a night. Then, second time he went around the Bible, then he slowed down to about five. And then next time, third time, then he slowed down to about two at a time. <laughs> But I remember working at Johnson Pump, which is over there on Lone Hill, where the uh, Chevy dealer is now, and a lot of us work there. And, um, and when I worked in the, uh, filing department, uh, and Johnson Pump used to make sub pumps for Arabia and water pumps and all those huge things. And I would, I would take my little cassette player and I would put it inside my lunchbox. And I made a hole. And I would put these earphones on their cheapies and I would sit there and file and do different things for about eight and a half hours. My ears hurt by the time I left, but I went through Chuck's whole library. And when I got done there, the Lord called me in the ministry. But you've got to have a hunger for God's word. You've got to be willing to get into the word of God. You've got to start somewhere. And you've got to build on what has been given to you. You can't just settle on that and say, okay, I know it and that's it. Every time I come to another book, I study it all over again, read it all over again, over and over again. I tear it apart. And when I'm all done with all my study again, then I may look at some of my notes. But not at first. I want God to speak to me. And so... It doesn't happen by just going to church. It doesn't happen just by listening to teaching. That's part of it. But you've got to read. You've got to study. Begin with one little book. Jude, Philemon. Read it over and over again. Tear it apart. What's the natural divisions? Key words, key verses, key phrases. Where's the introduction? Where's the conclusion? The doxology? The body of the letter? How does it divide? What are the themes? What are the principles? Then go to two chapter, then three chapter book, then four, then five, and then one day you can do Isaiah. <laughs> All right? But you've got to start somewhere. Like going to school in kindergarten, then first grade. You keep learning the same thing, it's just more refined as you keep going up, right? Reading, writing arithmetic, at least they used to. Now, people are stupid because they don't teach that anymore. People can't think because they don't teach the three R's anymore. In fact, if God tarries, people are not even know how to write. Your mind doesn't retain an iPad as good. Paper. They're doing away with all paper. Light makes your mind flicker and be more uptight. That's why kids have a hard time sleeping at night. If your children study with an iPad, you know they have a hard time sleeping at first. Do yourself a favor. When, if you're doing an iPad all the time, invert your color. Put a black, black background and let your white letters come out. That's what I do because of my eye. It won't bombard your mind as much. When you have to look at your pictures, just reverse it because they look like x-rays. No big deal. But you've got, you've got, you know, I mean, stop and think what we used to do. When, when you started partying, you weren't very good at it at first. You were just following and copying people, right? Whether it be drinking or taking drugs or whatever. But the more you did it, the more proficient you got, right? Well, we became pros fast. Because we were dedicated. Committed. How much more to God? And the things of God, they repented. Their faith gave evidence of contrition and repentance. There, in verse five, fasting and sackcloth was a sign of mourning and grief of denial and affliction, wearing the rough garment. The greatest to the least implies the whole of the populace. Verse 6 through 9, you have the king also believe. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed. And published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Hearing God's word, the king humbles himself and repented. Now, you've got to consider the individuals that are repenting. They're the Assyrians. They're vicious. They're cruel. They're savages. And yet, God's word is so powerful that as we're going to see everybody got saved. We're going to see that's the greatest miracle people mock the word of God people make fun of it people um, they try to be um, funny about it but there is nothing more powerful in this world than the word of God to convict wretched sinners people that are over their head in debauchery and he can turn them around Newton The slave trader. Read his biography. And many others. Hmm. The king's decree. Along with the nobles. Would include the beast. No food, no water. Denying self. Afflicting themselves with sackcloth. Showing contrition of heart. A broken and contrite spirit, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. God will not despise. It's the willingness to put down our pride and to say, Lord, you are on the throne. And I need to get off the throne. I need to look to you. I need to allow you to run my life. I need you to call the shots. The sooner you hand over the steering wheel to the Lord and you get in the back seat, the better off you're going to be. He doesn't even want you to sit shotgun. He wants you in the back seat just following him. He noticed, declared that they were crying, that they would cry mightily to God for repentance in verse 8. That they turned from their evil ways and their violence and each of their hand personally what they were into. Now, the wickedness of the Syrians had come up before God. Chapter one, verse two told us God was going to bring judgment upon them. But notice the order here in verse eight is that first they repent and then God enables them to turn from their sin. Anybody who attempts to turn from their sin without repenting will never do it. Please do not mistaken. Godliness with being moral. You can be moral, not godly. But if you're godly, you're moral. Godliness comes through repentance. Born again. You don't get to heaven because you're moral. You get to heaven because you repented and you're godly. Never perfect. But you're trusting God. You're depending on God. You're being transformed. You have been saved. You're being saved and you shall be saved. You're under construction. And so the order is important. In verse 9, the king um, repented and called all to repent on a maybe. I mean, it's, it's, it's just really hard to believe even as a Christian. <laughs> But this is God's record. This is not embellishment. This is not exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. This is facts, Jack. (laughs) This is the truth. This is God's inerrant, infallible record of what happened in history. As much as the flood. As much as the Tower of Babel. As much that God created the world in six days. And yet so many of the things that I mentioned are being argued and dispelled within the church from the pulpits of today in America. While we really don't have enough evidence for a six-day creation, come a little closer I can smack your head. <laughs> what is it that you don't understand? When God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he said... And the earth was void and without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the water. The proclamation of creation, the condition of, of the earth prior to creation, and then he says day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seventh he rested. And then the commentary in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, I mean Exodus in Deuteronomy, is the sixth day he rested. He didn't rest for a million years. It's a 24-hour day. The commentary of the New Testament, 24-hour day. It's simple. And there's so much trash that is being taught from the pulpit today of American churches. Because they are watering down the Word of God. Rather than believing what the Word of God says. If you have a hard time believing what the Word of God says, then you should question your Christianity. But sometimes people want to be so academically accepted so they believe in theistic evolution that that um, God started it and then he just let evolution take care of it. What? That's a pancake half done. That's a mug whomp. Mug on one side, womp on the other. It's either God created it or he did not. And we have all these silly arguments, and not even arguments, but declarations. Just listen to Christian radio. My Lord. You got to be kidding me. Ridiculous. And these people are supposed to be authorities. Some of them even have a PhD, a doctor's degree. Now, do you think Jesus is impressed about that? I don't think so. I'm not against education. Don't get me wrong. Get all the education you can, but when you get it, get over it. And get in the word of God. And your education has to be run through the word of God. Another Christian phrase that is thrown around all the time by Christian colleges and universities and churches. All truth is God's truth by Huxley, the educator, the progressive liberal. That's not true. All truth is God's truth that's verified by God's word. That's true. Because a lot of what they embrace as God's truth is philosophy, psychology, sociology, and relativism. It's a slippery slope, ladies and gentlemen. I've been through secular school. I've been through Christian University Seminary. I've hit it on both ends. I see the danger on both of them. Because Christian seminaries and universities are so liberal today, they're denying the inerrancy of the Word of God. They're embracing everything. And that is why the emergent church is just busting out. Because they're handing out a watered-down gospel. Cotton candy gospel. And if you dare to stand for anything that's objectively true 100% or you would bring up any objections to some of the questionable activities They would label you self-righteous, critical, holier than thou. Bring it on, doesn't really matter. And they do it all under the guise of Christianity. Because McLaren, Rob Bell, Paget and all these guys of the emergent church are redefining Christianity, the church, and the Bible. Make sure you know who you follow. Make sure you judge what you are hearing by the Bible. Make sure you're following the shepherd, Jesus Christ. Sheep follow the shepherd. Rats follow pipers. And when rats begin to multiply, they eat each other. Both in the world and in the church. It's just a matter of time. And numbers mean absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so... The king repents, calls them for repentance. Who can tell if God will turn and relent in verse 9 there? This is the greatest miracle. Some have called it the greatest revival, but as we said this morning, true biblical revival has to do with the people of God. As Christians have become apathetic, complacent, and compromising, Ezra 9, 9, Psalm 80, verse 18, 6, and Hosea 6, 2. All those scriptures put in revive. Revive us. And those scriptures will come up. God's people are revived. Revival is not for non-believer. Once people, the people of God are revived and they get back on fire with God, then the natural consequence and the overflow is their passion for the lost and they evangelize. But evangelism in and of itself is not revival. But when revival hits the overflow is mass evangelism to the non-believer, okay? I mentioned Dr. J. Edwin O'R, O-R-R, the greatest authority on revivals. He's in the website. Look him up. Incredible guy. He's written so much. He's no longer living, but I've heard him in Costa Mesa in the 80s. And so... Here in verse 10, the last verse says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And so, God relents. That means to change your mind. That bothers some people because the book of Numbers. Chapter 23, 19 says God is not a man should um, repent. He's not like man. Has he not said it? Will he not do it? Yes. Malachi 3, 6, scripture says that God changes not. Then how do we explain it? Simple. God is holy. Man is sinful. God offers a provision for man to be forgiven and to repent and be reconciled to God. If man responds to the offer of God then God hasn't changed his mind. The person has changed his mind so God doesn't bring judgment upon them. It's real simple. But again, these are called anthropomorphic words, words that we use for man, the hand of God, the ear of God, the eye of God, whatever, to demonstrate and to show what God is doing, but he doesn't have hands, he doesn't have eye, he doesn't have ear. So any human description of God's actions always falls short of that. Um, It's kind of like a weather vane, right? Weather vane, it just turns whichever way the wind's blowing, right? So in a way, it's a very true instrument. It will point exactly which way it's going. So like a weather vane, if that sinner repents, then God responds to that repentance because he has made the offer. If he doesn't respond to it, then God brings judgment. It's real simple. Because God is holy. And so, in fact, when it says God relented or repented, though we understand when it happens towards man, we change our mind, we repent. But God doesn't. We repent, therefore he takes us on the basis of our decision him or against him and then he has to be true to his attributes and his nature so really he has not changed at all it's us who have changed and if we don't change then there's judgment by the way in the, this is about 765 remember in 612 God destroyed the Assyrians through the hand of Babylon and Media. If you're talking about 123 years later. Because generation after generation, they forgot God again, right? Look at Adam. Everybody knew that God created the earth. The generation went forward. They forgot God. They denied God. They did everything. Look at a family. Whole family gets saved. The next generation. How many continue? And then the third generation. When I first got saved, a lot of us got saved together. You look 42 years later, now the herd has thinned out. <laughs> Where are they all? So if I asked you to stand up, those of you who have recently been born again within the first year or two or three years, there would be the masses and, that's what, and I would keep going up to 40 or 50 and there would be one or two people. But that last person that stood up, when they got saved, the amount was like the first ones I, 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 I asked to stand up. There were recent converts. We must continue in the word of God. It's a marathon. There's a the beginning line. There's a the finish line. Now. Chapter 4, 1 through 5, we get the displeasure of Jonah. Jonah is not a happy camper. Um, it says but sharp contrast it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry he wasn't just upset or disappointed this man is ticked off and um, literally it was evil to Jonah and became angry who's he angry at God Who else? He's angry at God for what he did. Look at verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Our Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know. That you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So here it reveals that his repentance was not a full heart repentance, but half-hearted. Head knowledge. His hate for the Ninevites in chapter 1 is still there. His repentance in the belly of the whale was partial. Half-hearted in chapter 2. God was trying to revive Jonah from his hateful heart. Revival for the believer, right? He wanted Jonah to be revived with passion and love for God. And that would give him a love and passion for sinners. He wasn't having any of it. None of it. But do you know how often Christians sit in studies and in church the same way as Jonah? And they go to church every Sunday and they study. Some of them are even in ministry. And they're used of God. But, homie, don't play that game, he says. Reluctant hard. It reveals that outward obedience and dedication and devotion to God will be used by God to benefit others, even while inward rebellion of the man destroys him. You want a good formula for destruction. Disobey and rebel against God. How long? I don't know. His bad attitude tainted God's good work. He saw only sour grapes. You ever run across old people? They're just nasty and bitter and cranky. Good morning. What's so good about this morning? Do you think he was born that way? You think he was like that when he was a little boy? No. Things have happened through life. They've been tainted. Come bitter. Many blame God for what's happened in their life. When they're responsible for the things in their life. You see, Jonah was blaming God. It's your fault. I knew this from the beginning. That's why I went to Tarshish. What happened when God came to Adam? Came to Eve first. She says, well, the serpent deceived me. I ate. She confessed. Adam said, it's the woman you gave me. But it's really your fault because you gave me the woman. Adam was the first Calvinist. He blamed the fallen God. Interesting. You see, and if you're not willing to be broken by God, then you may be crushed. All God wants to do is remove and take from me that which is going to destroy me and give me that which is going to make me live abundantly. The joy of the Lord and the um, blessings of God have nothing to do with my environment or what I have. Or who I know. It has everything to do with who I'm living for. That's it. And so we are most handicapped here in America because we are so materialistic, even the Christian community. That we can miss the mark in that way. There's a whole realm of um, Christianity that teaches that... um, Godliness is gain. If you really have faith and you really are godly, then you'll you'll be wealthy and healthy and uh, nab it and grab it and bag it. You know what I mean? How blasphemous that is. Paul says such people get away from them. Masses of people are under, under that doctrine. Fred Price, Copeland, Hagen. Many of them. It reveals that you may have a a gift and a call of the Spirit, but not be open to the fruit of the Spirit, agape love, Galatians 5.22. You want to be seen, but you're not open to God's love. You're not open to God's ways. Jesus proclaimed judgment over Jerusalem with a broken heart. Matthew 23, 37, 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a a chicken, uh, gathers his chicks under his wing a hen. But yet you were not willing. So now I leave unto you desolate, and you shall not see me henceforth. You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He wept over Jerusalem and gave her up. Wow. The prayer of Jonah revealed why he ran the Tarshish as we've seen. He blamed God. Wasn't that what I said? You're gracious, benevolent, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, patient, abundant loving kindness, steadfast love, resulting in one who relents or repents from doing harm, forgiving rather than judging. Isaiah says it's a strange way for God to deal with man in terms of judgment. He would much rather forgive. From the lesser to the greater, you as a parent, I as a parent would much rather forgive than to have to punish my child. I'm hoping they see the light so discipline won't have to be applied. If I being evil... Desire that how much more God Absolutely This text you find in chapter three ten the example of that to the Ninevites and you find it in Exodus 32.14. thirty four six Joel two thirteen gracious abundant merciful The bitter heart of Jonah look at three Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is just one pathetic fool. He's a whiny pants. He's a little sissy lala. He's so caught up in himself. He goes inward. He's exactly what this generation of our nation is. Me, myself, and I. Entitlement. You owe me. Wow. Take my life. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see his face if God said, okay. <laughs> he didn't want to die. If he wanted to die, why did he pray inside the belly of the fish? Could have just stayed there. He's a liar. Jonah's hate was so great and his vengeance so desired that he asked God to bring death to him. Elijah said, Kill me, Lord, too, in first Kings nineteen four, when he was running from Jezebel. That great prophet against the prophets of Baal. And this woman says, I'm gonna get you. Whoop, exit stage laugh, he's gone. Now she's a bad woman. I think Hillary's related. (laughs) The ones who hate were forgiven rather than punished. He hated this series. This burned him. His reputation and his prestige as a prophet who pronounced doom had been seemingly marred. He was preaching but hoping judgment. You would have to appropriate God's grace to accept God's grace for others. We love receiving, but giving out is a whole different matter. And that's why it's important for you to examine your life to the word of God, not to another man. But to the word of God. James says it's like a mirror. We look at a mirror and we fix our shirt and buttons and that and we don't look at it bad. And say, oh, it don't matter. We walk away. No especially women. They look at mirrors a long time before they leave the home. And the first thing they went in their car, they look at the mirror. When they get out of the car, they look in the mirror. Well, the Bible's a mirror. It tells me exactly who I am. I'm supposed to fix it. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said, Is it right for you? To be angry? The self-revealing question. Are you justified in your anger, Jonah? Jonah is like the older brother of the prodigal. By the way, the prodigal wasn't saved. Don't let anybody tell you he was. His father said to the older brother, your brother was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. Many pastors teach prodigal as a Christian who goes back in the world. It's not what it's talking about. The prodigal was never born again. Look at the answer in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. This guy has it bad. Jonah does not answer God. But he does. You know how he does that? He answers God by his actions. And Christians do that a lot of times. God talks to us and we don't answer. But we answer by our actions. What were his actions saying? Yes, they deserve to die. He went out of the city. This is the same as when he went to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. God was interested in the city, but Jonah wanted to have no part of it. He sat on the east side of the city. That means he came in from the west. Jonah was pouting because things didn't turn out the way he wanted them to. Forty days. Almost up. He was only concerned about himself. He believed God might still destroy the city. He gave him a glimmer of hope for his vengeance. Wow. 6-8. The important instructions of God to Jonah. In 6 he says, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah. That it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plan. My. How. How self absorbed he is. God prepares a plan here. They believe it's a castor oil plan. And all these things that God does here, they're all miracles. To provide some relief for his misery. I mean, he's about to break a vessel as it is. Probably has high blood pressure at this point. And um, he's relieving him from the sun. He's got bald head. It's hot out there, but he's got a vantage point where he can see the city. He doesn't want to be in the city because he's hoping God destroy it. This is the only time that Jonah was joyful. What was it about? About his own benefit. 100% beef. Christian. It's all about me. Wow. Both the sorrow and joy were. Centered on self. Verse 7 he says. But. As morning dawned. The next day, God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared of them an east wind, another miracle. And the sun beat on Jonah's bald head. (laughs) I think so that he grew faint. And then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die. Than to live. People who want to die take their lives. Majority of people don't want to die. Again, the self absorption of yourself because of the teaching of. Philosophy and psychology. And people blame things on their mother, their father, or because they stole their milk money at school or whatever. And it's the self absorbed, self destructive people that become neurotic in their thinking because they turn inward. God prepared the worm the next day. The plant withered. Jonah's not happy again. He's like a weather vane. He just goes this way, that way, whatever goes on. And then in 9, God now makes application for what he has to teach Jonah. He says, then God said to Jonah... Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. Whoa. I don't know if you've ever known a person like this or a child. But I have. I mean, there are some kids. Since they're little, you just can't turn them. They have... Such a strong, sinful will that even a mother and a father almost lose their mind. They do everything they can. Are you justified in your anger about the plant? Jonah answered, yes, even till I die. Jonah's anger and hatred had affected his entire perspective of life and would not Let it go till death. And so people are miserable, so they want to make other people miserable. Verse 10 says, But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and much livestock? He had pity on the plant, yet he didn't plant it, he didn't water it, he didn't do anything. A plant. Yet, yet, he didn't have compassion on the Assyrians that created in the image and likeness of God. People. Tree huggers. PETA. All these animal worshipers today. They will give millions. They will do anything. Yet, they have no problem with killing a baby in abortion. The worship of the creature more than the creator, which is blessed evermore. It's amazing. God's application is from the lesser to the greater. Should I not have pity on Nineveh because of the innocent children, one hundred twenty thousand, and livestock? It's a rhetorical question in which the book finishes and it's no accident. There's only one answer. Yes. Yes. Should I not have pity, compassion? Yes. And I think it's ended that way that Jonah finally got it. Because that's the only proper answer. And so when God is dealing with us, we have to come down to this question. Is it right for me to be compassionate with a sinner? Yes. Even your enemy. The Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. In fact, God prophesied through Isaiah 10.5. That he was going to use Assyria, the rod of my anger. This still hasn't happened. They're going to be used to take the northern kingdom in 722 into captivity. Wow. What a book. All those miracles. There's eight of them. Count them. You say, I only found seven. Yeah, because the greatest miracle is the salvation of the Ninevites. That is the greatest miracle. Don't forget that one. (laughs) The absolute greatest miracle. Your salvation. That I'm saved. Is an incredible miracle. Only God can do miracles. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and thank you for your word. Thank you for this little book, Lord, that, Father, we would apply it to our lives. Pray for every person here, Lord, you know where we're at. And there's always areas in our lives, people, things that happen, that we would remember your graciousness to us. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. You may be a Jonah tonight who has become bitter against God and uncompassionate towards the lost and you just have a hard time. There's no joy in your life. There's no smile. There's no... um, Springing your step. You're just dragging along. Why are you living a life like that? You don't have to. God is able to revive you. If you repent and ask him to fill you with his spirit and his joy and his love. And that you remember how fortunate you are that God... Even allows you to call on his name, then you need to turn to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then you're an Assyrian. And the message to you was 40 days, and none of us destroy judgment. If there's no repentance. And so God would have you to call on his name so you can repent and then be able to turn away from sin. That means to be born again. So if you don't know Jesus, you want to be born again right where you sit or over the Internet, you can say this prayer right where you sit and you will be born again. Find a church that's going to teach you the word of God, not entertain you. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jump in the trenches. Roll up your sleeves. And stay busy for the Lord. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.